In this episode of Emergence, we'll be speaking to Professor Ian Brown of the Animal and Plant Health Agency in the UK about the recent global spread of avian influenza and its impact. Welcome to the Emergence podcast, brought to you by MSD Animal Health and hosted by me, Dr. Alistair King from the International Veterinary Health Department. All thoughts and opinions expressed during this podcast are those of myself and my guests and do not necessarily reflect those of the company. If you follow us on Twitter, you'll be fully aware of the massive and global spread of avian influenza at the moment. The Global Disease Tracker on our website shows just how widespread this is. We're currently in what is probably the worst outbreak in over a decade. That impact of avian influenza can be seen in so many places. We're seeing in the UK that free-range eggs are no longer available, as poultry have to be brought indoors. New York is closing poultry shows and exhibitions. In fact, US outbreaks have doubled over the last month, with over 20 million birds having to be killed. It doesn't matter which region of the world you look in at the moment, you're going to find outbreaks. They've been reported in Portugal, in Togo, in Burkina Faso, in Japan, in Hong Kong. I could go on. This is a major issue at present. It's therefore a good time to talk to Professor Ian Brown. He's the head of virology at the Animal and Plant Health Agency in the UK. Ian has dedicated his life to avian influenza, and he's able to give us his perspectives, covering everything from the international stage down to the backyard flock owner. Let's head straight into the discussion. I'm really pleased to be joined by Professor Ian Brown. He is the Head of Virology Department at the Animal and Plant Health Agency in the UK. Ian is an expert in avian influenza, and we've got him on to talk a little bit about what's happening. But first, I'll hand over to you, Ian. Just explain a bit about your role and how you got there. Yeah, good morning, everyone. So my my role is really to provide science expertise to a whole range of stakeholders, um, government, uh, industry, um, NGOs. And this is about establishing the science about the disease, helping us detect and identify new outbreaks, and then how we can use that information to better prepare and mitigate against future threat. And then this, so that's a very much a sort of a national facing role. And then there's also an international role. So I'm director of the International Reference Laboratory. That's the OIE, World Organization for Animal Health, and the FAO for avian influenza. And that um, gives us an opportunity to network across the globe with other laboratories to basically gain knowledge intelligence because we're talking here about a transboundary disease this doesn't respect political boundaries this virus moves very fast across countries regions continents so it's very important that we have a global village so to speak of intelligence and and connectivity to understand what's coming um, where it may be going to and how we can best prepare for it so that's really the work of the international reference laboratory and part of that is an organization called Oflu which is an open network sponsored by the OIE and the FAO, which is an open network of laboratories that have an interest in avian influenza. And I'm chair currently of the steering committee within Oflu. I think one of the things that's really impressed me with avian influenza is that network you have. I think it's 
the most advanced network for any disease control, certainly in veterinary medicine, that I see. And it's really useful for keeping up to date with what's happening. The flip side of that is it's also really clear because you're doing a good job, the last six months, getting a massive increase of cases occurring. I get these alerts from the OIE, also from AFA, and it's like every other day I'm getting an alert of an outbreak somewhere and a new case, and it's a lot of high pathogenic avian influenza, not the low pathogenic, but it seems a real shift to me. Are you recognising that and what's behind that? So it's a very complex landscape, and I'll probably take you all the way back to 1996 um, in China, when at the time there was an unremarkable infection in a flock of geese caused by an H5 high pathogenicity virus. What we didn't know at the time, and that was a truly exotic occurrence, you know, we had, we'd only seen very periodically outbreaks with these type of viruses over time. But gradually, over the last 25 years or so, these viruses have become well-established and entrenched where there is poultry production. And they've already managed to make the jump into wild birds. And this is a game changer because what used to be a more localised infection that could be quickly dealt with has become a much greater problem because of the way that this virus can easily spread. So the reason why we're in this situation right now, dealing with huge numbers of cases, so it's not just in the UK, it's in Europe, it's in the Northern Hemisphere, it's down into West Africa. We've now got an expanding um, outbreak going on in North America. So this is a total game changer. So although this virus has been moving and changing its guise, it's still an H5, high pathogenicity avian influenza. That's the common uh, link between all of these events over the last 25 years. But the virus has evolved and changed in that time. And it's evolved into something, frankly, a lot more dangerous in terms of veterinary health. It's got very high ability to spread. It obviously causes a very severe disease in the birds it affects. It seems to have a ability to infect a broader range of avian species than perhaps strains have had in the past. And as I've already mentioned, it can spread very quickly through wild birds. So there's a lot of dimensions in there which all translate into we're in a much more increased environment for risk. There's the other dimension, of course, in the One Health arena now where people, sadly, if exposed to high amounts of virus, can sometimes get infected with these strains. So we also have to think about protecting public health. So obviously controlling the disease in animals will obviously, of course, contribute to controlling the risk of reducing infection in humans. So you've got all of these facets together. And whilst there's been fantastic international cooperation over the last 20 years, the sad reality is we've not got this disease under control. So instead of becoming a more localised exotic infection that we can get on top of, there are a number of countries now around the world that are saying we've reached a point where we actually can't track every individual case. We can't effectively control it on every individual farm or production system. It could be a live bird market. It could be a large commercial farm. And we need to find different ways to manage this disease. And clearly, vaccination uh, has been already widely applied for a number of years in, in many countries, but it's not been taken up extensively around the world with this paradigm shift in risk and threat now from these viruses clearly globally we're going to need to work together effectively to try and reduce this continuing burden of disease uh, i mean it's it's limitless at the moment as you say um 
you know, if we look back in Europe, the first major epidemic with this virus started in, in 2005. Then over the subsequent few years, every few years we may get a new incursion. But generally, those incursions were of relatively low consequence. Not many countries affected, very few poultry. But increasingly, we've seen when these events occur now, they're occurring on much bigger scale. So 2016-17 was a huge outbreak. It was surpassed in 2021 by another outbreak. And the 21-22 epidemic that we're right in the middle of right now is probably going to break records again. And from a UK perspective, it's off the scale. So in 2016-17, we had 13 outbreaks. In 2021, we had 24 this year, we're already at 106. Wow. The changes in the virus and how it's behaving are having a really fundamental impact on poultry production and people that keep birds. One of the things that's really interesting with you saying that is the awareness at public level, the news and everything. You mentioned 2005, that outbreak then. That was what got me into working with transboundary diseases. I had just taken the responsibility of working with the government and then you had the avian influenza outbreak and we set up the vaccine bank and a whole heap of things. And I remember very much all the news stations and everyone talking about this outbreak, this risk. There was the dead swan up in Scotland. There was all these things happening. It then settled down. And then we've had subsequent outbreaks, as you said, but the news has never picked up on it in the same way. So that awareness seems to be much lower. What do you think in the next six months then with that low awareness means people aren't always keeping an eye on things as much? What does the next six months to a year look like with this disease? Well, okay, right now um, in European countries and in the UK and indeed other countries, this outbreak is not over. Um, we have diagnosed cases in the last days and weeks. Now, whilst the epidemic we believe has peaked in Europe, I use that word lightly, peaked. That means that we're still in an uncertain phase. I think we can expect further cases. What will this look like through the spring and summer? A crystal ball is almost needed for this because we're in uncertain territory here. And the reason why I say that is that this particular epidemic has been characterised by the fact that we have seen huge numbers of wild birds affected across Europe. So more than before. And in the UK, we've had over 800 wild birds positive. That's only the tip of the iceberg. Last winter, when we had a sizable epidemic itself, we only had just over 300. You can look at the metrics and the numbers. That translates into a lot more viruses come here. It has replicated and spread very efficiently amongst wild birds. It's contaminated the environments. And from those contaminated environments, it's finding its way into poultry systems. There's two things that will really slow this down. One is obviously effective detection and control, which is happening. And the second thing is, is climate effect. So what I mean by that is there's two things the virus doesn't particularly like. It doesn't like extremes of temperature. So the hotter it gets, the quicker it will die. And it doesn't like ultraviolet light. Now, obviously, as we move out of winter into spring, the environmental conditions are less conducive for the virus to survive in the environment. So this virus, of course, is a virus. It needs to be in a host to propagate itself and spread. So, of course, in time, once it's in the environment, the clock starts, the virus is decaying and it's dying. But of course, in winter, we know that this virus can survive for very long periods. So we've already tracked this particular H5N1 virus that's causing the large epizootic in the Northern Hemisphere. That can survive at four degrees C, we reckon for around about eight weeks, sorry, six to eight weeks on pasture. 
So, you know, if wild birds shed the virus through their feces into the environment next to a poultry farm, it could stay there at four degrees C in an infectious form for multiple weeks. So that increases the risk. Now, obviously, as the weather warms up and we get more sunlight, that will speed the decay up. So um, at 20 degrees C, that period of time reduces from six to eight weeks down to two to three weeks. Okay, and then, of course, you know, prolonged time at that temperature will kill the virus faster. So we are moving into a phase now where the environmental contamination will happen naturally, decontamination, plus the control to detect and, and effectively track. So we would expect in temperate climates in Europe at the moment that there will be a definite drop off in cases. How long that will last? Very difficult to predict. But I think given the scale we've had, we could expect a slightly longer tail than we've seen in previous epidemics. So it's quite plausible this could continue into late spring. Now, last summer, we had the first and novel event with these particular group of viruses. And they never cease to surprise us and, and are ingenious at finding new ways to survive and maintain. So this H5N1 virus we've got now actually came to Europe last winter. But it was a minor population. So we had a strain, an H5N8 serotype then, which was the dominant strain. So this H5N1 is quite closely related, but of course it's, it's different. And that H5N1 virus, although it was a minor feature in last winter's epidemic, it's the dominant strain. Overwhelmingly, almost all cases are H5N1 this winter. So that's telling us the virus is very fit. But also through last summer, it survived in wild birds in Northern Europe. There were sporadic detections through the summer months in some backyard poultry and in some wild birds, particularly in Northern Europe. Now that's the first time this has happened because what normally happens is the virus comes in in the autumn with the migratory birds, the waterfowl that come to Europe to winter, they bring the virus with them from their breeding grounds and their route through Central Asia, Middle East, into Europe. They bring the virus here and then it spreads to the poultry. But when the wild birds then disperse at this time of year to their breeding grounds, the infection risk reduces and we don't see the cases. But concerning last summer, we saw some low-level persistence. Now, the size of the epidemic this winter is obviously because the virus has come back in with all those migratory waterfowl. But does this mean there's a bit of a shift here in terms of how this virus is going to behave? There's, of course, a balance that the virus ultimately will run out of target hosts to infect. So it either infects a wild bird and the bird dies, or the bird recovers. Now, of course, the more birds that recover in the wild bird population, the more difficult it is for that virus to maintain, and they could die out and be replaced by another strain. So this concept of antigenic shift that we talk about in humans' viruses is quite actually applicable here to avian strains, is that we get subtle shifts and changes in the virus from one season to the next. So uncertain territory, but I think 6 to 12 months Six months, certainly, we're going to see a decline in cases. And we'd like to think that the virus will disappear. We won't see poultry breaks through the middle of the summer. Next winter, though, of course, is highly unpredictable. Will this same virus come back or will a slightly different strain come back? And the experience of the last two years has been that we've had now three winters of successive epidemics in Europe. It's the first time that's happened. So I think we have to prepare for the fact we're going to have another event next winter. But there's a lot of uncertainty around that. You mentioned the temperature. I'm going to ask a question I should know the answer to. This is embarrassing. Four degrees, you saw that the virus survived better. I can see how Northern Europe 
that's significant. Four degrees is about the average temperature for the year, I think. <laughs> and clouds, so you don't get much ultraviolet light. I'm in New Jersey. Very different weather. Our, we- our winters hit minus 10, minus 15. What's the virus like in the extreme cold? Well, the way we keep viruses alive in the laboratories, we put them in freezers. So, you know, the the reality is that if virus is in the environment and the temperature goes below freezing, that will preserve the virus. And then when you get a thaw, then obviously you start restart the clock almost in terms of how long does it take those temperatures to rise. So very cold temperatures will preserve the virus for longer. I mean, it's been known for a long time with studies going back uh, in in time that the influenza viruses can survive in lake water for, for almost a year. Uh, under the right conditions, you know, so in, if you imagine the silt and mud in the bottom of a lake doesn't get much light, doesn't warm up a great deal, the virus can survive there in an infectious form. So the colder the weather, the longer this virus is going to survive and the longer the tail in the epidemic is going to be. And of course, the North American outbreak is a little bit behind the European. Yeah. It's, it's beginning to scale right now. Um, I know that there's already been about 7 million birds killed. Um, to put that in context, in the whole of the UK, we've only killed about just over two and a half million birds so far, or have died. So you can already see, even though the American outbreak is relatively embryonic, it is already, because of the scale and the size of farms affected, it's already got the potential to get quite big. A lot used to talk about the trans- transfer of this virus being waterfowl. Is that still the main threat or is it changing? Yeah, well, it's a good question. I mean, we still believe waterfowl are really important hosts. So we know that this virus in ducks and geese will be shed in quite high quantities. Uh, We do know that some of these species can succumb. Um, So there are some quite ecologically threatened populations of wild geese at the moment in Europe that are getting infected with this virus, and it's actually killing a lot of them. So, for instance, the barnacle geese on the Solway Firth in, uh, in the UK, b- between Scotland and England, there's about 40,000 birds winter there, and they represent a major breeding population globally. They go to the far north to breed. We know about 40% of those birds have died as a result of infection with this virus. So they're very susceptible to this particular strain. But, of course, for every bird that dies, there are probably many others that will recover, and they will shed virus. Now... We know that this virus is quite promiscuous. Uh, We have to assume most orders and categories of bird can become infected with these viruses. So we've seen quite a wide range of species affected. So there's a so-called bridging species. So they're the species that might frequent environments where there are ducks and geese, and then they might move closer to farms. So things like corvids, the crows, uh, the gulls, um, which can traverse and come and, and, and sort of scavenge near poultry farms. And then there's the really small birds, which has seemed to be less of a feature, the passerine species that, that frequent farms. So there's a wide landscape. Birds of prey, you know, um, lower densities of those birds, uh, but they feed on dead wild birds. They feed on carrion in the winter, and they're very, very susceptible. So you see a lot of mortality in birds of prey. So... This virus has got the ability to spread, I would argue, potentially consider any host, but there are some that are more important. And we know that the, the waterfowl are very important, but we've also seen in the last couple of years the feature that this virus has got into the shorebirds. So those birds that sort of feed on the shoreline, they're water birds, um, they are quite susceptible as well. Whether they're a key feature in spreading, we don't fully understand that. But certainly, yes, 
Your ducks and geese are still firmly in the frame as your key reservoirs, but others are important as well. I can't help but think about changing behaviour in birds over the last decade because of the weather and everything and how much that could be involved. And you mentioned shorebirds. I was already thinking about oyster catchers. You know, oyster catchers used to be just at the sea, but now you see them all over farmland and they're common birds. They've spread around a lot. So I do wonder about these changes and how yeah, the environment is, is altering and be- animal behaviour is also then changing. Yeah, I think when we have to look at changes in disease patterns, of course, there's always two areas you look at. Isn't, well, there's three actually, isn't there? There's, there's the virus itself, there's the population that it affects and there's the environment and those all come together. And I think what what we're interested in researching and looking at now is, is are there changes in bird behaviour that are more conducive to the maintenance and spread of these viruses? So is it just about the virus or is it about the environment? So we know there's climate change, there's changes in land use, all of this impacts on the demographic and bird behaviour, the connectivity and the structure between wild bird populations, when they migrate, where they migrate to, Bearing in mind, these wild birds can maintain these viruses, but they can also be exposed to virus and poultry. So ultimately, these viruses start in uh, the high path or high pathogenicity viruses start in poultry and spreading to wild birds, and then they're maintained independently. Then they perhaps burn out and are replaced by another strain. So absolutely, the behaviour of birds and how long these viruses, how these viruses can maintain in the environment, is part of an is part of an important triangle to solve the riddle and of course with these viruses maintaining in wild birds and apparently being very successful in doing that that's going to create much longer term risk and uncertainty because we can eliminate it from poultry but we still got the wild bird population i do firmly believe if we control this disease in poultry across the globe so no good it's just being controlled in europe and the americas if we can't control it in asia and africa if we generally can get on top of this infection and reduce the risk of it spreading to wild birds, we nullify that effect. Uh, and then we go back to spreading through trade and movements in poultry. Let's not underplay the spread of this virus in poultry populations. So yes, the wild birds may bring the virus in, but once it gets into poultry, it can spread very easily in the poultry sector. So definitely a lot of cases in Europe, and I'm sure it was previously the case in the States, certainly in Asia as well, that this virus will spread very, very efficiently between poultry farms. So we mustn't underplay the role in maintaining good biosecurity and keeping this virus contained within infected poultry farms and not spreading out. Thanks, Ian. There's some really good One Health messages there about how everything interacts. Have to keep remembering that when we look at these transboundary and emerging diseases. But I think you've led us on very nicely from talking about the virus itself and what it's doing, to now how do we start trying to do something about it? So what can countries or governments do to reduce that risk? There's a number of tools, and I suppose the answer is there isn't a one-size-fits-all here because it will depend on the veterinary infrastructure, the structure of the industry and how they work in partnership with government, It will depend on the utility of reliable diagnostics. Um, This is a changing virus. We have to make sure that we're on top of that. So the international network, like through Oflu, provides information and assurance about the right tests. So do we need to change them or tweak them as these viruses change? Early detection. So working with the industry. So 
all stakeholders reporting disease suspicion early. So that leads to the conventional approach to detect infection early and depopulate and restrict movement and put all those standards on to, re to reduce spread. So that's the conventional way of controlling disease. Now, clearly, that system does not work in every country. Um, if you're dealing with outdoor production of ducks in Southeast Asia, uh, a complex live bird market structure where these viruses can very nicely persist with occasional spillover into commercial farms, you have to think about something different. So surveillance is important because we need to track where the disease is, but we then need to use that in a way that we can try and reduce disease burden. I think eradication in some areas and countries right now is not a realistic possibility. What it is possible to do is to stepwise reduce that infection burden, gradually reduce the amount of spread, reduce the number of cases. And vaccination, of course, is going to be key too. So I already mentioned it's being used extensively. There are some perceptions, misperceptions about effective use of vaccination. So in some sectors and some countries, vaccination is probably their only mechanism. If you use vaccination alone, it may not achieve your outcome. So you need some awareness of biosecurity. You need to do some surveillance. You need to try and reduce hotspots of infection. Vaccination alone might not completely achieve that. So if it's used as a component of a control program, then it's going to have more chance of success. The whole topic of vaccination, which I'm sure we'll come back to, is quite a complex one. But we have the possibility now, don't we, to make really good vaccines. COVID has taught us a lot of things about how we can make vaccines. What we need to do is to take that knowledge and the science that we have around these viruses into a sort of a more of a global stratosphere in terms of thinking about how can we share that information and work together to get a better outcome. So it won't be, I don't personally believe this is going to be a quick fix. We're trying to deal with a problem. It's a bit like a fire. And, you know, we didn't get to the, we didn't get all the fire tenders on site quick enough, did we? Uh, so this fire has got out of control to some extent. It's being managed, but it keeps reflaring up. Like those summer flies, you think they put them out and they come back again. We need some good international cooperation and, and, and strategic approaches to how sharing knowledge, how we can best get on top of this infection. But it will not be an immediate win. Um, even with a systematic global commitment, we are talking at several years to really get this infection burned down. Um, but there are the tools potentially out there. So there is light at the end of the tunnel, but right now it's quite hard to see that because we're in a, a, a situation where more and more countries have got um, infection. Some are effectively controlling, but you know, even in Europe where we've got good tools, we've seen a sizable outbreak and that's really stretching resources to ensure we can keep this under control. I'm glad you talked about vaccine being part of management. One of the things that's a pet peeve of mine about vaccines that people think vaccination means you can forget everything else. Great, I've vaccinated and therefore I don't need to worry. And that's not the case. I knew that when I was in vet in practice. I definitely know it now, seeing things on the bigger scale. Vaccination is not an excuse for bad management. It still comes down to it's a tool, as you say, and part of what you use. So that's an important message to, for people to keep thinking. That's a great point, I think, because, and this is about education, isn't it? About those using yeah, vaccine. Yeah. I mean, there are lots of reasons why vaccines can fail, but if actually used in the right way, they can be highly effective. But absolutely, the concept that vaccination alone, it'll make a, it'll 
It'll go a long way towards protecting your birds and your flock, but it will not stop the virus coming in. So we've got to remember, vaccinated birds can still get infected and shed virus and spread it, but it will make a significant impact on reducing the susceptibility in the first place, the ability, it will reduce the amount of virus those birds shed, and it will stop onward transmission. So it's a very, very valuable tool. But some other basic concept, uh, concepts around good hygiene practice will enhance the value of the vaccination rather than just using vaccination alone. So we think about that those vaccines. I know there's a lot of debate going on about the regulations and vaccination. I, I think I've got at least three conferences or workshops I'm going to this year. I'm sure you're going to a lot more, but I've got three at least talking about that, which hasn't been happening that I've been seeing for a couple of years. A lot of the problem has definitely been respect to trade so that countries are vaccinated against avian influenza, have trade restrictions, and that means the poultry organisations are concerned about vaccination. If it's going to block their, their export and everything, that's a, that's a big, big issue. How is this currently being considered and looked at? Yeah, um, good question. So there are vaccines out there that have good utility, and there needs to be clearer messaging about effective use of vaccination. And you're right, it's been used up to now. The perception is this, this, this should be a block to trade. Um, it creates risks, um, which importing countries are not prepared to take. Some of that is founded in perhaps a poor understanding of the utility of vaccines and understanding how they can be used, when they can be applied and how to provide the safeguards. So there are a lot of international initiatives now that have said the time has been reached where we have to have a proper international debate about the utility of vaccination against HPAI and how that can still facilitate industry producers of birds to be able to carry out their normal business. That means changing attitudes a little bit to vaccination. So the World Organization for Animal Health, which ha which is the uh, guardian, if you like, of, of safe trade, um, has recently revised its what we call the code chapter. The code chapter is more supportive and proactive in saying that vaccination should not be used as a barrier to trade. So when vaccination is applied properly, with due diligence and surveillance and those other structures we talked about, this would not be a justification to block trade. So I could signpost um, to a, an important meeting coming up in, in October this year, in fact, which is the International Alliance of Biological Standardization. And they're running a uh, workshop in uh, Paris uh, on the 25th of October. And this is all about changing attitudes to vaccination. So it's about gathering the best science, what we know about vaccines, people from industry, people, stakeholders from farms, bringing people together and saying, what are the barriers and what does it take for us to break these barriers down, build better trust and confidence in vaccination? And in some cases, dispel, um, dispel a bit of a myth. So I think there is a head of steam. Um, we need to keep that momentum. Yes, we do need to improve vaccines, probably. There are some things we can do quite quickly to make sure that the vaccines that are being used are really relevant. OK, and what I mean by that is there are some countries around the world that may be using vaccines to strains that were around 20 years ago. And the virus changes. That's what flu virus does. So we need to have a system. You touched on um, authorization of vaccines. Yes, that's part of it as well. 
the regulatory framework, not my area of expertise, but in the human world, we've solved it. We need to be able to solve that in the veterinary world that we can rapidly update vaccines. We've got the concept with COVID now, haven't we, that we can make mRNA vaccines and we can just put in a new strain and we can almost do that in, in weeks and months and have a new vaccine. So we need the same utility into poultry vaccines. We need to use the best technology to see how we can improve some of them. But some of these vaccines that can be effective when they're applied appropriately. A signpost to China. Now, China's been vaccinated against this virus for many years because they've had a major problem with it. And they've had around 14 updates to their vaccine in the last 20 odd years. So that's telling you the rate of need to update the vaccine against the changing virus. Now, I'm not saying all of those updates are absolutely critical to control it globally, but it does mean we need to match vaccine to what's happening out there in the field. And that's where groups like Offlu can come in and these international networks, because we have activities right now that we're initiating to try and define the profile of these viruses and how they match to vaccines. So we can put that information in the public domain and that can inform those that are thinking about going into vaccination. So, yeah, it's about good vaccines. It's about how to get those delivery programs out there using experience from other sectors, educating those that use them in terms of what that means and the things they need to do, having the support of competent authorities and the pharmaceutical sector, because we need to engage the pharmaceutical sector. There needs to be a market for their product. Yeah, and that's the reality, isn't it? Um, nobody's going to bake um, millions of doses of a vaccine that actually hasn't got a market. So we do need to bring all of these facets together to change the way we think about vaccination against AI. It still won't be every country's go-to. Countries that are traditionally free are perhaps understandably going to be reluctant to vaccinate because they want to look at the cost-benefit. But we've got an increasingly large number of countries now that are struggling to control this disease, and vaccination will obviously be an important tool as they move forward uh, in helping them get on top of it. I also think the countries that are free, if the trade becomes less of an issue, it's easier for them to look towards having vaccine banks. So not using them, but having something they can call on when they do need to. And if we go back to 2005, a lot of countries did have vaccine banks. And that was very easy for us on our side then to support that. Because you say you've got this constant uh, market, you've got, you know what's going on, you can predict it. It's much, much harder when you're in a situation like now where it's so reactive. But for us to make vaccines takes six months or more. So it's very hard. Someone suddenly contacts and say, we need a vaccine next week. You're not going to be able to do that. I think through some of this work, it is possible that... So I wouldn't want the message to go out there that you absolutely need the immediate strain that you've got associated with a problem to, yep, to yep. vaccinate effectively. So one of the things that we're looking at um, with the international network is can we find strains that we think elicit a broad protective response so there will be strains that probably elicit a broader immune response in the birds and therefore they're more tolerant of changes in the virus so let's be clear it's not absolutely essential that you have a perfect match um, yeah. and probably that's whilst that might be the ideal um, it's probably unlikely that you always achieve a perfect match um, so it's finding a match that, that is sufficient, that it will interrupt infection, it will protect the birds against disease, it will make a big impact on reduction of shedding, and it will stop transmission in flocks. And there can be a tolerance there. If you vaccinate at high levels with a vaccine that's broadly matched, you can still achieve good positive outcomes. So 
you know, again, it's about putting some of the science out there together in one place and saying, right, this is how we can help farmer um, realize that actually we're not asking them to update their vaccine every 12 months. We may have to think about more regular updates because, as I mentioned, some of the commercial products on the market, and this is because it's not a market drive, are probably very old strains and they're actually quite mismatched. Um, so there is a need to reflect on what we've got. But some of these countries um, in, in Asia have already got their own systems. They've already been taking local strains and making vaccines. So to some extent, there's experience already out there. Um, but it's maybe, you know, how we get a more global program. And you mentioned vaccine bank. Yeah. Um, aspiring to a global vaccine bank. What, why should that be beyond us? And why actually shouldn't that be aspirational that we look for? Because, you know, diseases like foot and mouth disease, they've, they've established vaccine banks over many years. And generally, these are really effective for the international community. So, you know, I, I don't think it should be beyond our wit to develop global vaccine banks. There's a lot of similarities with how we look at control, I think, of avian influenza when you talk about that vaccine side and foot and mouth. From the point of view of making the vaccines, some strains are definitely more immunogenic than others. So it isn't a case, as you say, of, okay, every time we have to update, it's making sure we've got the right strains in there that will do the best and stimulate the, the most immunity. I think there's even evidence on the human side where they do change every year. Sometimes you end up with a strain that is closer matched, but actually the protection isn't as good because the immunogenicity of that vaccine, that strain doesn't work as well. So there's some really big areas to look at, best done by us all working together and a partnership in how we really do this. Agreed. I think we have all the building blocks. We just need to make sure we can put those together and maybe up to now there hasn't been such a strong drive. Um, it perhaps has been seen as a problem in some parts of the world, but not um, not a major global problem. Well, I think the the spread of the virus to Europe, Africa, and the Americas in the space of months for a further occasion. So there's been a lot of interplay between Asia, Europe, and Africa. Though obviously this is only the second time this virus has made it to the Americas. And the first time, of course, it had a very high consequence. And at the moment, we're in a real uncertainty. What we also don't know is, is whether that virus could maintain in wild bird populations in the far north, up on the Arctic tundra, Greenland, and, and places where that virus could then come back into the Americas next winter. So, you know, we could be having to live with this for some time. So we've got to find better solutions to work together. I think we have to respect as well, not everyone is going to need to use vaccination. Not everyone is going to want to use vaccination, but where it is being done, we, we can have perhaps more confidence and trust in, in the utility of it. And ultimately, as I stressed at the beginning, I think vaccination will have an important role in reducing that infection burden in poultry. And at the moment, we're at relatively high levels, probably higher than we've ever been with these viruses in poultry themselves. And the key ultimately is going to be we've got to get this infection under control in poultry. The wild bird issue, to some extent, will probably take care of itself. These viruses won't probably maintain indefinitely in wild birds. But as long as they're exposed to infected poultry, there's always a continual risk of spillback. So we need to get that under control. The other thing we have to manage, of course, is consumer confidence and perceptions around public health risk. So when we vaccinate, we need to... You know, the, it's three legs on the stool. We definitely need to have human health colleagues 
sitting in that space and aware of what's going on because there could be concerns that, well, if you vaccinate, you drive the virus underground. Could you increase the risk of a human infectious variant emerging? So so we have to be sensitive to those things, but they should not be blockers to us looking at this in a more structured way. I'm going to be at that workshop in Paris in October. I'm really looking forward to it, not just because I've missed visiting Paris for the last two and a half years. It's going to be some really important stuff talked about there. So it'll be great to be able to report back from that. There's a top program of speakers. So you've got the world's best authorities from all sectors' perspectives, government and policy, industry, science, field veterinarians, pharma. So we've got we, you know, we have got all of those key players we were talking about at, at this meeting. So, you know, we are very positive about the opportunities uh, and, and the fact that we can make a, a difference. I think getting all those people together, they're not coming together just to discuss vaccines and other, another meeting on vaccination. They're actually really wanting to drive change. And that's the real sole focus of this of this workshop. So I'm excited about that one. I think it's a I'm seeing that real change in approach to what we're how we're looking at this. So I think that's good. I'm aware of time. We're going to take it down one more level. We've gone from the international to government. Let's take it just down to the farm level. What recommendations do you have for large-scale commercial flocks at how they, they best control the disease? Well, of course, um, I have a slide when I go and talk to industry professionals, and it says the virus will find the weakest link. And unfortunately, that's quite, it is a sad um, fact that even sometimes with really good biosecurity or what looks good biosecurity, the virus can still find its way in. So I know in Europe, we've, we've had only a small number, but we've had grandparent flocks becoming affected. So things right at the top of the pyramid where you'd imagine the biosecurity is at its strictest. Then you've got the other end of the scale where you've got farms that because of the sector type, maybe it's more difficult. So we've got a problem in Europe in ducks, probably particularly in France at the moment, extensive spread. Because of the nature of the rearing, us just saying goodbye security is what you need to do because it's not feasible. But there are lots of things that can be done. So even in a system that's extensive, it's outside, there can be better awareness. I think education of the people that work on the farms and how these viruses get in makes them understand why some of those um, hygiene procedures are really important. I think sometimes it's ignorance. You know, why have I got to change my boots here? Why have I got, you know, this all feels uh, uncomfortable. It slows me down in my job. But actually, it's about educating the people that have got to put the, the practices in place. So I think every commercial farm really should already have a contingency plan. They should have a, a review of their biosecurity. They should try and understand where their weak spots are. Now, we've got a lot of information that's come out of these outbreaks over the last number of years. So there's a rich amount of info. The biggest problem is if somebody says, well, can you tell me how the virus got into my farm? Normally, it would be very difficult to be absolute with confidence, say, this is how it got in. You know, was it was it a feed delivery vehicle? Um, was it that you had a hole in your roof? And believe me, we see things like this. Was it we've got a vermin problem? Was it that we were actually bringing bedding in and it was uncovered outside? Uh, was it we had a wild bird infestation problem? Uh, was it that our boot change facilities weren't particularly good? They weren't fastidious. People were walking in, not doing fastidious boot change. Where are disinfectant dips not f- fully effective? So there's lots of points of failure there. And I think the, the message is there's, there's information out there. I think it's for industry to realise that actually they ignore these things at their peril now. So what was perhaps 
you know, a once in five, ten year event and it won't be us, it'll be someone else. I think this has become a real risk for everyone now. And I think really large commercial producers really, if they've been fortunate to avoid outbreaks, they really need to renew their rigour. It's difficult to maintain high biosecurity 12 months of the year round. Not my area of expertise, I've never run a farm. And I can imagine that it's really difficult to keep the bar high. But you've got to have a basic standard throughout the year. But obviously, in the really risk periods, you've got to be able to ramp up a bit. We've seen lots of examples where just a tiny blemish in a practice, a very biosecure poultry house, and then with an elaborate change system and foot dips and everything else, really, really gross, shower blocks, and then they've opened a side door to bring some straw bales in. And you have to say, well, hang on a minute, you've got all that infrastructure, you're doing a great job, but then you, you know, there's one weak spot in the system. Uh, yeah, I think that would be my advice to industry is, whilst they're probably getting tired of hearing the message about biosecurity, there are lots of little things they can do which will all additively equal some sort of risk mitigation. And is there anything for the backyard flock that you would say? Very difficult, isn't it? Um, you know, by the nature of the way these birds are produced, um, I mean, I certainly can comment based on the UK cases, and we've had over 30 cases in backyard flocks. So they're a really important, significant feature with these viruses now. Perhaps they weren't in 2005, but they've become an increasing feature. That's telling us, I use the term backyards are sentinels for what's happening in the environment. Because obviously, they're kept in all sorts of conditions and environments. They're generally outside. They often have access to water. They're often kept as mixed populations. A lot of the cases we've seen have got ducks and geese and chickens freely mingling. Now, and that's the nature of production, the way people want to produce them. Again, it's making them aware of the risks. In the UK, we put measures in, stepwise measures. So the first measure was what we call a prevention zone. That was about making people aware that they really should reduce the contact between their birds and wild birds and the environment that wild birds frequent. So keep the ranges clean, try and prevent access to ponds, keep food in under shelter so it doesn't bring wild birds in, because anything that reduces the level of contact between wild birds and those birds is good, and keeping your ranges clean. So not allowing wild birds to come in there and shed feces. All of those things can incrementally make uh, quite a difference. Obviously, the next step from the prevention zone that we had in the UK was to move to a housing order. And that's quite difficult for some of these people that keep these birds. They haven't got the wherewithal, they haven't got the resources, they haven't got the shelters. But absolutely putting the birds inside, of course, is, is the final risk mitigation step, effectively, to reduce contact. So I think it is about education, it's about awareness. There's an increase in demand. More people want to keep backyard birds. I think in the pandemic, the stats are many more people kept backyard birds. Um, but I think there's a bit of a responsibility to your birds. And this, remember, this is an actually very unpleasant disease in, in poultry. It might be quite a fast death, but it's not pleasant. So there's a welfare consideration as well. Mm. So generally, these people that keep their birds, they, they care about them and they want to protect them. So there are things that they can do, but we've got to be clear with the level of infection risk, um, backyard populations are at the mercy of becoming infected. And in the absence of doing any of those standard hygiene things, that risk is obviously more. Thanks, Ian. I think education is always something I talk about. I'm hoping we'll have a podcast which will focus very much on looking after backyard flocks. So we'll have some advice for people. Thank you very much, Ian. It's been fascinating talking to you. This was the first disease that got me into this area. I've got a bit rusty, I'll absolutely admit it. It's been wonderful hearing you talking about it and just 
reigniting my interest and my passion in let's get this under control. Thank you. Well, hopefully listeners out there will, will take something away from this. I mean, you know, to stress, this is an infection that is not pleasant for the birds. There's a welfare impact. There's an animal health impact. There's a public health impact. There's actually a food security issue long term here. So it is only by working together we're going to get on top of this. And, and, and stakeholder cooperation, we've shown that where that's good, you can get on top of this disease. So let's be clear, this is not an impossible challenge, but we'll need people working together. And, and once you get into working with this disease, I've had a lifetime of working on flu, but the chance of working on anything else now is almost remote, I would say. <laughs> I will corner you in Paris in a coffee break and get a bit of an update from you. Please do. Yeah. Thanks, Ian. All right. Thank you. As we mentioned, I'll be catching up with Ian later in the year. But we also have some further episodes on avian influenza lined up for the podcast, including different perspectives from other experts and field advice from a vet very much involved at the deep end. But what else is happening around the world in One Health? In March, the UK reported a case of Crimean Congo hemorrhagic fever in a woman who had recently returned from Asia. This potentially fatal disease is transmitted by ticks, or potentially through direct contact with people and animals already infected with the disease. Avoiding tick bites is an important part of prevention, as there's currently no vaccine available. That report segues into a webinar we've just run, a One Health approach to vector-borne diseases. Over 8,000 people registered to attend this, and, I have to admit, the sheer volume trying to log on at the same time caused a number of IT issues. Therefore, we're making the event available as a recording. You just need to register at https colon slash slash thevetexhibition.com slash one dash health. That's quite a mouthful. I will put the link in the show notes for you to follow up with after. I moderated this two and a half hour event, which included presentations from Dr. Julie Gerberding and Dr. Jane Sykes, along with a panel discussion, including Dr. Peter Irwin, Dr. Susan Little, Professor Guadalupe Miro, Dr. Paul Overgau, and Professor Richard Wall. It concluded with Dr. Robert Laven presenting some real world evidence on use of parasite control treatments by animal owners. If you've been following lumpy skin disease over the last years, you'll be aware that this has now become established in the Asia region. Use of homologous attenuated vaccines in Europe appears to have the disease under control, but it remains a threat. And as it appears in new countries and spreads further, we continue to monitor the situation and we provide support to any countries affected. And finally, the Food and Agriculture Organisation have a new event in their e-learning academy. Again, I'll put a link in the show notes. It's going to be easier than trying to read it out. This webinar is entitled Addressing Antimicrobial Resistance in Agri-Food Systems, an FAO e-learning introductory course on AMR. It will take place on April the 27th from 1.30 to 3 o'clock Rome time. All these FAO technical webinars are free and open to everyone and delivered on Zoom. And that's all from this edition of the Emergence Podcast. Thank you for joining us. I'll speak to you again soon. And in the meantime, I wish you well. Goodbye. <music>